We had a provocative story over the weekend about what Cleveland might do with the extra cash if it did not have to spend money on the stadium where the Browns play. That's our first topic of discussion on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atasi, and Laura Johnston. And Layla, you get the fun story. If Cleveland decided not to renovate the football stadium where the Browns play, leaving the owners to find another venue, how far might the city's stadium money go to providing other kinds of recreation for Cleveland residents to actually use? Because as we know, very few people attending Browns games are Cleveland residents. Exactly. This was a really fun thought exercise that Lucas Deprilli conducted for us. The idea was that Citizens of Cleveland, many of them never even set foot in the stadium, like you said, and they're really getting short drifted when the city spends hundreds of millions of dollars on a stadium for sports teams and their billionaire owners. And, you know, the Browns are going to end up with some massive state of the art scoreboards and cushy seats. And half of Clevelanders, meanwhile, say that they can't even use their city parks or their ball fields because they're just total garbage. So, we asked the question, if we put that stadium money to use for, for Clevelanders, how far would it go toward improving the quality of life in the city with a particular eye toward parks and recreation, just to kind of draw that parallel to Brown Stadium? So we began with the idea that the Browns would probably be looking for somewhere in the ballpark of $300 million in public subsidies for the stadium. I mean, that's not a perfect figure at all. Um, that's And it's frankly probably a very conservative estimate, but it's adequate for this experiment. And then Lucas scoured the suburbs for the kinds of projects that kids and families would really love to have in their Cleveland neighborhoods. And we figured out that it would cost, you know, we figured out what it would cost to fully outfit Cleveland neighborhoods with those kinds of top level amenities. So for starters, for that $300 million price, the city of Cleveland could fund its entire 562 employee division of recreation at the proposed 2024 levels for more than 16 years. I so, although I do think we should change the name to Department of Total Garbage. I think you just <laughs> nailed it for what the condition is of the parks and recreation. Terrible, right, right. And we should be seeing a, a master plan of how the, how Justin Bibb plans on dealing with the parks, but that's a that's another story. Um, but also, so the city of Beachwood, if we get a little more specific here, they just spent $3.2 million to completely rebuild one of their playgrounds. It includes rubber and turf surfaces, a rock wall, zip lines, a sand pit, climbing structures and play mounds and shade structures and a pavilion. With $300 million to spend, Cleveland would be able to build 93 of these playgrounds. That would be more than five in every ward. Um, Mayfield Heights, they just opened an aquatic and community center. It costs $34 million. It has a pool, has an 8,000 plus square foot adaptive playground with a poured in place rubber surface and separate play spaces for two to five-year-olds and five to 12-year-olds. Cleveland could spend $300 million building at least eight of these in the city. If you took just the park from that facility, which is worth $710,000, Cleveland could install one in each of its existing 172 parks and still have more than $177.8 million left over. So that's just kind of a sampling of some of the possibilities that Lucas highlighted in his story. The idea here is city leaders have always just resigned themselves to bending over backwards for sports teams when they should be thinking about what's really in the best interest of residents. Well, here's here's the thing that we should think about. The Browns fans who attend those games come from the region, 
and from Cuyahoga County. And it's fewer than 10% come from the city of Cleveland. So the fact that this is on the backs of Cleveland, largely, with the taxes and the syntaxes it creates, isn't fair. And, and it's really a, a good exercise to take a breath and say, wait, wait, if you use this money for the recreation of residents, how much could you do with it? And you could do a lot. I mean, it's it really does raise the question, shouldn't we have a discussion about priorities here? You know, I, what what is what should we be doing? What you know, I hope Cleveland City Council members read that story and have this discussion. What before we engage in horse trading with the Haslam's, we should point out too, we're talking about this the day after the Haslam's finished selling Pilot Flying J and they got a couple more billion. They are mm-hmm. worth billions and billions of dollars, far more than the city of Cleveland budget. Right. They've got money, Cleveland doesn't. But, but we should have this discussion. This should be something we talked about. We noticed that Ken Silliman, the former head of Gateway, was remarking on Lucas's story yesterday, taking kind of the same stand, that yes. this is worthy of a real public discussion. What should our priorities be? Yes, absolutely. And if the priorities that we we in the region love the Browns and could never see to stand to see them part ways with us... Then we should we should rethink how we fund that stadium. It should be a collaborative regional effort. I mean, for the city of Cleveland to own it and to have to bear the brunt of this financial cost, it's it's uh, I mean, it's it's unthinkable when you consider how few Clevelanders actually do get to use the stadium. Well, it's that contrast that we've talked about previously with the towpath trail. I forget how many millions of people use that every year. But when you look at the cost of that compared to the usage of it, it is a far better public service than any of the stadiums because so many people use it for recreation, for getting healthy. Cleveland's not a healthy city. We talk about it all the time. Cleveland has a lot of health problems. There's food deserts and there's high blood pressure and diabetes recreational opportunities would be great Mm -hmm. for the people of Cleveland in a way the stadium never is. And you just hope we have this discussion that this is a time where you look at the limited resources of Cleveland and say, Hey, maybe there should be a different way of paying for this stadium because so many people enjoy it. They should be paying for it. Great stuff. Check out Lucas's story on cleveland.com. You're listening to today in Ohio. The investigation seems ceaseless in the biggest corruption case in Ohio history. So what are leaders in Columbus saying is the reason they have not adopted a single ethics reform in the aftermath? And Lisa, is Bill Seitz speaking with a straight face when he said the system works as it is? (laughs) Well, there are several ethics reform bills and a bill for full repeal of House Bill 6 introduced by both Democrats and Republicans in Columbus. But uh, none of them have gone anywhere. And a lot of it has to do with infighting in the Republican Party, I think, um, you know, the Jason Stevens, Derek Marin thing. But some of the bills that they've tried to introduce, including um, that dark money groups must disclose where their money came from and how they spend it, banning utilities from using ratepayer dollars on lobbying, uh, mandating full disclosure of all income sources for state government lobbyists, uh, toughening the uh, PUCO and the nominating panel member requirements, and then requiring that state utility regulators reveal previous income from companies that they regulate. So House Majority Leader Bill Seitz, the Republican from Cincinnati, says, as according to House... Uh, 
referring to House Bill 6 reform measures, he says they don't have bipartisan support. He said repeal bills are just gotcha bills and they're just trying to make a statement. He says the system does work. And he points to the fact that only one lawmaker, Larry Householder, the former speaker, was ensnared in the so-called scandal. And then he said that the $60 million from First Energy would have been completely legal, except that a jury found there was an illegal quid pro quo between First Energy and Householder. And when he was asked why House Bill 6 full repeal has stalled, he says it's not going anywhere because it's stupid and there's no compelling need to make changes. Here's why Bill Seitz is wrong. Just look at the recent tobacco bill the legislature passed it's they they took away the ability of cities to limit the sales of certain kinds of tobacco products which are largely going to kids and people in minority neighborhoods because they're in the pocket of big tobacco they claimed it was for the little shopkeeper but they're they're going to make people sick and die they're going to create more addiction more death more tragedy because the tobacco lobby came in, bought them all off. We see it time and time again. The nursing home lobby has gotten huge gifts from the legislature because they walk in with mountains of cash at campaign time. To say the system works is preposterous. And the reason he says it is because there's a gerrymandered supermajority in the legislature. And I I don't think there's any chance in hell these guys are going to fix it. The only way Ohio can fix it is to change the Constitution this November change the way that the districts are drawn, take it away from elected people like Bill Seitz and have real people draw these lines and bring this state back to center. It's preposterous to look us in the face and say no reforms are needed. The state house mm-hmm. is completely corrupt. And, and then saying that the full repeal of House Bill 6 is stupid. Right, <laughs> right. Right. I was just going to say, I think people would think, oh, well, householders in in prison, we've got these other uh, indictments out there, but we are still paying hundreds of millions of dollars to coal, you know, plants in like Indiana. Like all of it is not gone. There's a lot of things that are still on the books that we are paying for. It gutted our clean energy requirements and we're going to live with that legacy for decades. Our kids are going to live with that legacy. And I don't think people are paying attention to that. Lisa, how much do you think the loss of uh, small newsrooms across the state play into this? I, I We had a major scandal before you moved back here and called Coingate that wasn't anything close to the scope of what First Energy did. And it it completely turned the state house inside out. The voters went, threw everybody out put in a whole new administration. I mean, it had huge ramifications. This time, with a far worse scandal, you don't have any voter outrage because I don't know if voters even know about it. Well, yeah, and we, we've seen, didn't the Youngstown Vindicator shut down within the last couple yeah. of years? I think that these small town newsrooms are extremely important. You know, unfortunately, bigger papers can't get reporters into every small town in every county in Ohio. And these small papers, they go to the meetings, they see what's going on, they let the people know. And the loss of these journalists is a is a big reason why they think they can do things with impunity because nobody's paying attention. But Coingate was also, I mean, that was even before I moved back to Ohio and I don't feel like the world was as partisan then. I feel like people hadn't quite divided so much as they are now. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, this, the fact that there have not been ramifications for all these people in the legislature is striking 
And I just don't think that would have happened 10 years ago when newsrooms were more robust. And look, we're robust, right? We still have a gigantic audience and lots of people read us. And when people went to the polls last August, the biggest turnout was Cuyahoga County. We made the biggest difference. And I think it's because people here are fully informed. And when you look around the rest of the state, that falls off with the lack of information. I don't know how you fix it, but I think there's a one of the fundamentals of our democracy is an informed population. And the, the press, the fourth estate has served that role. And now it's not in so many areas. And what we have is we're heading toward authoritarianism. Well, we made a big mistake when the internet was new and everybody put their content online for free. And then, you know, everyone expects it to be free now. So and now all sorts of newsrooms that did it for free are out of business. Not us. We're thriving. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What step happened Monday in Ohio's drive to drill for oil and gas under state parks and what still has to happen before this nightmare actually begins, Laura? Well, speaking of a corrupt and gerrymandered state legislature, let's talk about fracking under state parks. So Infinity Natural Resources, LLC, will enter into negotiations with the state regulators for permits and other details. Like, it's not a done deal because all of that has to be worked out, but there's no turning back unless a lawsuit overturns this. The company offered the state $41.5 million plus 20% of the revenue it makes selling this natural gas extracted from the state park. That goes to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources Parks Division. A certain percentage is dedicated to Salt Fork State Park itself. Then there are a couple others. Texas-based Encino Energy Partners will drill under smaller tracts of land, Valley Run Wildlife area in Carroll County and Zeppernick run wildlife area in Columbiana County. They're only going to pay 1.3 million plus the same 20% of future revenue. And then there's a group called Hillcorp Energy and EOG Resources. They're going to drill under several parcels owned by ODOT. So that is also up for grab. Under the state law, all of these bids, including the names of the companies, the money they offer to the state has been kept secret until this Monday meeting in which I sounded like it was astounding, the number of protesters, people turned out just to bemoan what the state is doing here. They had to take a break. It was so bad because they couldn't be heard. And and yet they still did it, even though, even though the hundreds of letters in support of this were found to be dubious at best, where letter writers said they don't know how their names got on there. This seems to be just full speed ahead. I keep waiting. <laughs> for common sense to come in and go, wait, wait, what are we thinking? Let's just stop this right now. This is dumb. And we keep moving toward it. it it's, it's such a train wreck. We're going to wreck our state parks and state lands. I don't get it. The whole reason you set them aside is for preservation and everybody's marching down the road because the energy lobby is bought off the legislature. Right. It's like, right. get back to what... What Bill Seitz says, it's working. Is it working when the legislature has voted to drill in state parks? It's amazing. I know. I, I would love to see a statewide referendum on this to see how many people really want drilling in state parks. There's probably a very small number of people that do, but I would have to think the vast majority of, of Ohioans think this is a terrible idea. And they're saying, oh, well, we're not going to drill straight down in the park. We're not going to put the drilling equipment on the park. We're going to do it from pads on the side, which means they're fracking because they drill down vertically and then they drill over horizontally. They put all of this fluid into the ground. They don't have to disclose what's in that fluid. That's considered a trade secret. Then they're going to have to have all these trucks going back and forth 
carrying this stuff, adding pollutants to the air, adding noise pollution. And people who live near there or the people who want to camp there, how how is this at all fair? Well, and the Ohio Oil and Gas Association called this a big win for the state of Ohio and called it a fair and equitable process. This is just like one of those things where we say the exact opposite of what it is and we hope you believe right, us. Think about it. They're going to pump fluid under the parks that is filled with poison, but it's secret because the legislature right. got bought and paid for to keep it that way. But the system's working. I and mean, the letters was the clearest indication of the stink here. Whole bunch of letters in support of drilling under state parks, which doesn't pass the sniff test at all. You're just not going to have lots of people writing letters saying, I believe in this. And it turns out they're not they're bogus. We proved it. They, people say, I didn't write those letters time after time. And that's not enough to stop it. Dave Yost launched a criminal investigation into it. That's not enough to stop it. But hey, Bill Seitz says the system works. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Northeast Ohio's big planning agency studying the commuting and travel habits of people in greater Cleveland to help decide where to invest our precious transportation dollars? Lilo, we know about this because I'm one of the test subjects. <laughs> well, have, you, have you been given your date where you're going I to I have. It's, it's leap day. Oh, how exciting. So, uh, yeah, every 10 years, uh, the Northeast Ohio Area-Wide Coordinating Agency, known as NOWACA, sends surveys to about 5,000 households in Cuyahoga, Geauga, Lake, Lorraine, and Medina counties. And they ask them to answer questions and to track their daily transportation habits. And Chris, you get 10 bucks for answering these questions. And <laughs> if gonna... my wife does it, she gets an extra five. They even give a <laughs> bonus to family members. Well, you should buy coffee for the members of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so NOACA will use the survey data to determine transportation priorities in the region and to identify possible local transportation projects. And transportation planners will use the data to figure out how to improve mobility, roads and public transportation and reduce congestion and how to improve safety for pedestrians and bicyclists too. So if you've been asked to participate, you likely have received your survey in the mail. It includes a short questionnaire. And then you're asked to record your travel on a specific day, documenting where you go and what type of transportation you use to get there. Like I said, they're planning on sending these to 5,000 households in, in the hopes of getting at least 9,000 to respond. Some things have changed since the last time they did the survey. For, for one, a lot of people are driving electric cars, so they want to get a handle on, on that to determine how many charging stations the region might need, for example. Also, you can use a mobile application this time to track the travel of participants instead of just relying on their own reporting on paper records or using a separate GPS unit. So that's cool that you're going to do it. <laughs> well, there are some problems with this. And, and I ask people about it on the text account that I send out each day. Because when you fill out the form, they want your birth date. They know where you live. They, mm -hmm. they pretty much have all of your data which people who want to steal your identity would love to get a hold of. And then there's a location tracking app that they want you to use. And a lot of people get wiggly about that. This is for a good cause. This is important for NOACA to understand. I think NOACA probably should have done a better job of explaining to people how they're protecting their data. Because I heard from a bunch of people yeah. that said, I'm not doing it. I'm not giving them my birth date. Why can't I just give them my age? And I know why. They, because they need to know exactly. Because they want to classify this age group does this. This age group does that. Right. They need the information 
to look at the demographics of the county now, the demographics that are expected in the next 10 years, it's an absolute good that they're doing, but nobody trusts this anymore because how many times have you read about data breaches? So it'll be interesting to see how long it takes them to get to the minimum number they need. What are the uh, the instructions for using the app? Do you just turn it on on the day yeah. that you're going to use it? Well, yeah, but they also say if you're willing to use it for the next couple of weeks, they'll continue to track your data. There's one day in particular they want to make sure they get you, but if they can get extra data, that would be helpful to them too. And I think that's probably really important in a hybrid working environment. We're not in the office on Thursday and I have some stuff I have to do, some appointments, mm -hmm. but there are days when I don't leave my house on the non in the office days, which they want to know. They want to know if you don't go anywhere. But um, but there does looks like the app will continue to pick up information. I'll probably leave it on there for a week or two, and then I'm deleting the whole thing from my phone. <laughs> right, right, of course. I wonder what happened, to what extent weather would, would uh, influence people's travel. You know, if we get a big blizzard on the day that they told everyone to track their travel, a lot of people might stay in, and they, that skews the numbers. I also wonder if, if there's a certain demographic of people who are more likely to respond, and how does that skew the data? Right. That's what I was thinking. You know, I think a lot of senior citizens in particular would be very wary about sharing their yeah. data. I mean, when my dad was alive, he wouldn't get an easy pass because he didn't want the government tracking his movements. I mean, I think there's a lot of that out there. Uh, and this kind of gets into that. When I went through the question, I did, went through it just for news purposes. I wanted to come back in and say, hey, there's a story in this. And I was surprised at how specific that personal data was. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Does Sherrod Brown think roller coasters at Cedar Point go airborne? Why does he want the Space Force Training Center located in Sandusky, Lisa? Well, because NASA Glenn has a test facility in Sandusky, and he also says that Ohio is ideally suited for this because of its world-class research universities, ex existing NASA facilities like NASA Glenn, and the, the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, so Senator Sherrod Brown and all of the Ohio Democratic con Congress members and five Republicans, J.D. Vance, Max Miller, Bob Lotta, and Warren Davidson, signed a letter to the Defense Department urging them to locate the Space Training and Readiness Command Delta 12 mission, that's a mouthful, in Sandusky. Uh, this mission will assess and test U.S. Space Force capabilities in hypersonics, electric aircraft testing, space environment simulations, and in-space propulsion. Um, again, he says, you know, Ohio also has a lot of space and national security businesses here, making it a good fit. The Space Force was something that Trump brought up, but it actually became reality in 2019. It's the first new armed services branch since 1947. It's headquartered in Pentagon, but they also have operations in California, Colorado, and Florida. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if they do that, because then Sandusky would be known for two big things. <laughs> well, and it's interesting that the, the people who work for the Space Force, there's 14,000 of them, military and civilian, and they're called guardians. Interesting. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many state employees in Ohio make more than the governor, and what are some of the high-paid positions, Laura? 360 employees, and we're not counting higher ed, so you're not going to get any college presidents on this list. And there are some doctors and nurses, but not for healthcare systems that are affiliated with those state colleges. DeWine was paid $170,950.52 in 
in the last year. He has a listed pay rate of $82.24, about $3,000 more than he made in 2022. So you get a cost of living increase when you're the governor. Uh, The only elected officials making more than DeWine is at the judicial branch, and that includes his son, Justice Patrick R. Or sorry, Justice R. Patrick DeWine. He received one hundred ninety-three thousand seven hundred seventy dollars. But eight of the top ten paid state employees were psychiatrists with the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. The top one was paid four hundred seventy-three thousand nine hundred seventy-one dollars. She's been the top paid employee since twenty nineteen in the state of Ohio. Her earnings peaked in twenty twenty, which, when you think about addiction and mental health, that was a tough year. Six hundred forty-eight thousand three hundred sixty. So a lot of this is coming because people are working overtime. So nurses, correction officers, highway patrol troopers, a public defender, and a veterinarian all ended up making more than the governor. And you better believe they are working. I don't know. Mike DeWine works probably a lot, but they work a lot of hours. What does the state veterinarian do? I, that is a good question. But, you know, when you think about ODNR, you would think that the Na- Department of Natural Resources probably has a vet on staff. All right. We have a list online. It's at Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much has car insurance gone up in the past two years and how big of a role do the Kia and Hyundai thefts play into that? Layla, we talked about this in Ohio-specific story a couple of weeks ago. This is a bigger picture. Yeah, nationally, the cost of car insurance is up 38% in the past couple years. But experts say that the Kia and Hyundai theft trend is not really to blame, even though these cars were stolen nearly seven times more often than other cars in the beginning of 2023. Insurance companies have kind of jacked their prices up across the board. Data shows they're actually paying thousands of dollars more for vehicle fixes, property damage, and medical bills. And that has a lot to do with the cost of repairs, which has apparently skyrocketed with supply chain problems and inflation. And they explain it that, you know, to make money, insurance companies need to pay out less than they collect, obviously. If they underprice, they're going to lose. If they overcharge, they'll be outcompeted. So to find that sweet spot, they have to put more information in their underwriting than other companies do. State regulators can determine what factors companies can and can't use for that, but one expert said that insurers will look to dozens of factors like driving history, the kind of vehicle, the zip code, credit scores, gender, etc. The thefts of Kias and Hyundais would be considered, but the smaller the data set, the harder it is to use it to set prices. And even with the number of thefts we've seen, it still is probably not enough thefts in a single zip code to swing the prices. That said, of course, you know companies like State Farm and Progressive have completely stopped insuring certain Kia and Hyundai mod- models, and, and they still haven't begun accepting applications for them. Yeah, I would think that the if they're going to raise rates because of those thefts, they would raise them on those cars. I mean, if you're not driving one of those cars, why should you have to pay the penalty right. for the number of times they're getting stolen? And really... Kia and Hyundai should have to pay the thing. I can't believe that states haven't sued them for the huge amount of money that police departments have lost chasing them down. Yeah. You know, I, I was really struck, though, by the high cost of of uh, the claims. I mean, they, they said that the, you know, about seven of every thousand insured drivers had a collision claim in this particular, I think it was December of 2019. That came down slightly to six of every thousand but the average claim cost went from 6277 to $9,486 in that same t- time period. I mean, that's, that is uh, quite a jump 
So I, I can see why that's driving the, uh, the, the high cost of, of insurance premiums. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. We've been talking about this for almost three years since the last Cleveland mayoral campaign. Lisa, when does Cleveland's West Side market move into nonprofit management and when might customers notice the change? Well, they hope they're happening. It's going to happen by the spring, but they're just now gearing up. The Cleveland Public Market Corporation is finalizing its management agreement with the city of Cleveland and also finalizing a 10-year lease agreement for the West Side Market building. The executive director, Rosemary Mudry, who began in early January, says, we're not in charge yet. The city is still managing the market, but we're gearing up for it. She says they're working on a lot of details behind the scenes. They want the ability to pursue as many funding sources as they can. And they also have to get things in line like employee benefits, retirement plans, and all of that worked out before they hire six senior managers for the the, uh, market corporation. They're interviewing candidates now and they're narrowing the list, you know, of candidates. And like I said, they're looking to roll this out in the spring. Uh, Rosemary Mudry also says she's learning about the building. She's meeting with vendors. She's looking at the previous repair work that's been done and some of the upgrades. And she will continue to have one-on-one meetings with the vendors uh, through the spring. It's hard for a new mayor to make a measurable change before he's up for re-election. And it sounds like this is one of the things that you'll be able to point to in the next mayoral election as progress, that we did this, we got this done. Um, because what I, you know, what are you going to point to? Maybe he'll point to that I'm not building a football stadium, I'm going to build playgrounds. That'll be a big <laughs> one. Um, but it'll be, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays into that race because people have been worried about this place for a long time. And does this make the big change to revive it? Well, and I think, but hiring this this management group is just the first step, you know, that there's still repairs that need to be made. A lot of those cold cases are old and going bad. So once the market, you know, group is in place, they've got a lot of work cut out for them. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're done on a Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening. We'll be back on Wednesday talking about the news.